when you get to that finish line and you know that you won, all those emotions that you wrapped up into, you can just kind of let go. I mean, everybody knows, has the picture of, uh, in their mind, when we beat Cleveland on that last shot and he's punching the air and he's all excited. That's who we knew, the competitive Michael Jordan. The win at all cost Michael Jordan. Sometimes we question whether he was human, whether he had feelings. It's just a guy that was totally focused on one thing and one thing only. The only emotion we had ever seen out of him was anger or frustration. We were literally stunned to see those emotions. When they beat us, well, we met in between both locker rooms, and he just put his arms and just started crying. He was so happy that he had won, that he busted through. That was a special moment for him and myself. It's a beautiful feeling. If you're gonna lose, you're gonna lose to them. You know, and I'm gonna lose to Mike. And that, that's how, how it should be. At last, I fit somewhere in the category of Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. These guys are 11. How do you like them, man? The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. We love some movie characters, and sometimes the best way to get into the characters we love most is to dig deep into their motives, their calling, their sense of self, talk about what they really want. This is movie typing where we select, engage, and unveil the intentions and drive the greatest characters on film. My name is Jeff Cook. I'm a philosopher in Greeley, Colorado, and with me is TJ Wilson, businessman, lover of theology, and personality typing expert. Hello. We are with the Sean Isaac Palmer. Yes. We are continuing our deep dive into The Last Dance. Yep. It's on. We have yeah. the foundation in place, and we're going to roll now. Let's do it. I'm in. All right, moves to episode five. You know what? It's got to be the shoes. <laughs> his uh this this episode goes through his relationship with nike his relationship uh with the other players on the dream team at the olympics and again lots of stuff about his image and there's some political stuff here about what it looks like to be a successful black man in america hmm. um and just to start this one out barack obama at the beginning says any african-american in this society that sees significant success uh, has an added burden. And a lot of times America is very quick to embrace a Michael Jordan or an Oprah Winfrey or a Barack Obama, so long as uh, it's understood that you don't get too controversial around broader issues of social justice. Right. Yeah. How is it that Michael Jordan is navigating those waters as an eight? Yeah, and this, the eights I know, and it'd be interesting to hear TJ's perspective about this, the eights I know really are concerned about justice mm -hmm. and Jordan just doesn't seem to be mm -hmm. and like he's given away millions to charity 
And yeah. you'll never know whether that's because he really believes in it or because it's a good tax incentive or whatever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he just, he doesn't, that seems to be the spot within him that he never fully comes to. Mm-hmm. And I think most of people, particularly people in the black community, have always found that disturbing. Like that, mm-hmm. that you could do so much or the perception mm-hmm. that you could do so much and you've just abdicated. And they've, the same criticism is true of Tiger Woods, somewhat of Magic Johnson. But you look at folks like Bill Russell, Jim Brown, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, LeBron James. They have chosen to leverage that platform for the benefit of particular communities. And, and Jordan just hasn't. I don't know. I know a reason for that. Um, the eights that I know are um, like justice is a very big part for them. But it's it's only in so much as they see injustice. Hmm. And I do know some eights that don't see injustice because they aren't looking. Hmm. I I know several eights who are extremely involved in issues of social justice. I think you could point to any organization that that does significant work and even a lot of the ones that does insignificant work and you can find eights littering these organizations. Um, But I also know a lot of eights who are only sort of concerned about their own tribe or about the protection of themselves because they aren't really looking outside of themselves in those ways. And, and just hearing, like, just, just seeing the way that, that Michael Jordan sort of focuses on himself, his career, and, and the people that are immediately around him, I, I'm not that surprised that he's not a social justice warrior because he doesn't seem like he's looking past his nose in that way. Could it be that his circle of my people that I'm responsible for is just very, very small? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. And um, I don't know how, to, I don't know much. Most of the eights I know are social eights mm-hmm, or yeah. sexual eights. And, and he could easily be a self-pres eight mm-hmm. or even, yeah, the, like just, just that, that energy is not directed outward in a way that, um, like I know one eight in particular that in conversation, he is concerned about things being fair but he is not even a little bit active in pursuing that outside of when it directly affects him. Ooh, there you go. Because his fairness radar is huge when it comes to fouls or the coach not calling things straight between he and the other Mm -hmm. uh, team in in practice. Hmm. The fairness is there, but it's directed somewhere else. Right. And it's, it's, and, and I wouldn't say that it's, it's because he, I, I wouldn't call him insensitive or a jerk or any of like, I, I wouldn't level this as an offense against him. I would start by saying that it's simply because he's not looking. Yeah. Like, yeah. like at, at the, the best possible explanation, I would suggest that it just, it's because it, he's not looking. Mm-hmm. Man, that's insightful. Moves to episode six, which is on fame. And that, if if it's fluid, if your subtype is fluid, that you can move from social to sexual to self-preserving, there's a lot of language here to think that he has really tipped and put, been pushed into a very self-protective spot because he is so famous 
And the introductory quote to this whole episode says, uh, there's a commentator who says, I think what people don't realize is that from the moment Michael Jordan leaves the hotel room, the spotlight is on him. Everyone in the world wanted to either see him, talk to him. Everyone wants a piece of him in some way or another. He was pressured all the time. And he talks quite a bit about just how taxing that is. It's not the basketball. Mm -hmm. This is where he's really getting sucked out. And this transitions into talking about his gambling because he had been a superhero, good guy, the, uh, you know, like Mike, if I could only be like Mike, he's this person that you're supposed to emulate. But the gambling comes up at this point and he's having to defend it. What do you see there in terms of just losing your energy as an eight in defending some of the vices that you have that aren't strictly illegal, but are socially frowned on? Sir, I'm going there. Yeah. Well, it's nobody's business. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like this is, this is my thing. You don't, you don't get to tell me what to do here. This is none of your business and I'm not, I'm not breaking any rules. I'm not hurting anybody. This is nobody's business, but mine. And like, and, and I don't know any eights who would tolerate somebody's yeah. imposition into their personal private business yeah. in that way. It's controlling. It's controlling. Yeah. And I, yeah. and especially when I have given you everything mm-hmm. and this, this yes. is my, this is my one thing. Yeah. And like, you will, you will not have it. Yeah. It's <laughs> good. Yeah. The, I don't care what you think comes out in his profanities on this documentary, but the very first scene of him sitting down and he has the world's longest cigar burning <laughs> and a big glass of scotch. Like this is not going to be ever, you know, all the other sports documentaries I've seen. It's like, this yeah. is how I'm going to do this. Yeah. I, I thought that it was a cigarillo at first, and then I realized that it's just because his hands are so much bigger than mine. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that isn't that so much eight energy? Like, because his his thing is like I have conquered it, and yeah. so until you conquer it, I'm the king of the hill, and I will yeah. do what I want, and you won't tell me what I can and can't do. And yeah. so I'm going to sit here in a chair that obviously is facing the opposite direction that it normally is in this house. Um, and I'm going to smoke yeah. <laughs> and drink and you can't stop me because I'm the yeah. goat. <laughs> I'm yep. the goat. That was that episode I thought was real interesting on. There weren't a whole lot of quotable moments, but getting into his heart um, and seeing how he wrestled through problems and how you wrestle through conflict. Uh, and seems out there. And so there's a part of that I think is talking because I really found him talking about his father. So his his father comes off as his best friend. Yep. And mm-hmm. so it's not like um, I don't think it's just the gambling, right? I think this is a thing that I did with my father. It was a really Ooh. tough series. It was in New York. Um, we bat we had battles, and I go off and I do this thing with my father. Like I I was. In the, I was with the person where I feel the most protected, mm-hmm. yeah. And that's when the that's when the criticism comes. And he, got, what does he say in the documentary? He says like we weren't doing anything wrong. Like we were we were back by twelve thirty one o'clock in the morning. It's like I didn't hurt anybody, and you are t- and you are criticizing my time with the one person who I know won't ever hurt me. Yeah, that's good. But you all will. Yeah. Bill Clinton famously said something like, don't pick fights with people who buy ink by the barrel. 
Yeah. Or, or he, Char- he understood Charles Barkley. Charles Barkley, you know, his words to Tiger Woods early in Tiger's career about the press and the people. And he says, "These people don't love you. Like Oof. don't, like don't ever get it twisted. Like these people don't love you." Jordan shows them asking him questions, and you don't see that a lot in presentations of athletes. That that was something like the pull the curtains back. I'm giving you an answer to the camera with the mic in my face, but watching the guy who is asking the question and how he's asking it and how he's sneaking into spaces that aren't his, that are kind of my safety spaces. I saw that a handful of times. I'm like, Ooh, you're right. That guy's bad news. <laughs> Who's that asking the question? And of course you're going to react poorly to that person. Cause you're a human being that comfort with his father moves into the, the seventh episode which is where they they detail his father being murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, and his exhaustion paired with his grief leads to his retirement. And he says, I'm done. I have no more challenges. Mm-hmm. But an eight who has those things all taking place at the same time, what's worth talking about there? Well, he's, he's definitely showcasing like the kind of retreat to five that eights will do in stress. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's, it's a, um, it, it's too much to handle. And so I'm stepping back and, and this is how he gains control over that. Like it's, if he were to stay in that place, he has to face significant vulnerabilities. He has to share things about himself that he doesn't want to share with other people. And, and like, he's, he's just, he's reaching the end of himself and rather than risk being hurt by letting those vulnerabilities out, he steps back because he can control that. Yeah. And so his father dies. What's what professional sports of the big sports in America do the players spend the least amount of time with their family during the season? Baseball. So this is this is something he can control, but it's he's he can control not being around his family as well. If you want to look at through the lens of vulnerability, right, and having to not talk about, like, no one in Birmingham is going to talk to him about his fa- his dad. They don't know him well enough, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And in baseball, you are on road trips, right? You have a three-game trip to such and such place, even in the pros. But not, that's not true in football. It's not true in basketball, where you fly there and you fly back that night. Um, you're gone maybe two nights at a time. This is a chance for him to... A, try to deal with the loss of his father out of the view of his wife and children because, because he doesn't know how to be vulnerable in front of them. Ooh. And as a, like, I'm an aggressive number. That's what I would want to do. Like I would want to come back having grieved, having figured it mm-hmm. out. Yeah. And I would think that I was doing it for their sake because grief for aggressive numbers looks like weakness. Like mm-hmm. to be in the middle of grief, um, to, to cry for no reason because you're standing in the kitchen, but the real reason is that your father was just not died, was murdered. Yeah. <laughs> right? It makes yeah. total sense to me that he goes and does that. And that period of time, 18 months, is about the time people start to... I'm a, I've been a pastor for over 20 years. That's yeah. about the time limit when people start to untuck their head from the loss of the sudden loss of a parent um, mm-hmm. not a spouse but a parent like that's a that's around the general timeline so that's not shocking to me at all that's like and he and he could you know 
Yeah. Like most of us can't do that. Most of us have to go to therapy. He went to play baseball. Yeah. God, that's good. <laughs> that's fun. Um, and, that and can I say like, do it. Cause I just want to say this. Like when my wife's father died for her, it took several years just to recalibrate because they were so close. Mm-hmm. took her several years to recalibrate just who she was in the world. Mm. And if she could have gone and done something else for, during that time, she definitely would have, and I totally get it. There's, there's identity issues that are wrapped up that are just layers and layers and layers and layers in similar fashion. Your parent dies, and it's, it's not just how do you wrestle with grief, but how do you wrestle with your self-understanding and... You're entirely right. Therapy for some folks, he went to go play baseball. So that's that's super clever. Moves us to episode eight. There's a lot here about trash talking, but there's a lot about identity as well to kind of push back into this um, image. But it opens with the Bulls versus Charlotte in the playoffs, and the Bulls are playing their former teammate, BJ Armstrong. And he is hyped because he does understand how to beat the Bulls. He knows his team isn't as good as the Bulls, but he hits a game-winning shot at the end. And Jordan sees it as a dig on him. And Jordan says, I felt like BJ should know better if you're going (laughs) to high-five trash talk. (laughs) Now I had a bone to pick with you. You know, I'm supposed to kill this guy, you know, and I'm Mm. supposed to dominate this guy. And from that point, I did. Yeah. What do you hear there? (laughs) (laughs) well that that same you know like um jordan didn't want to win he wanted to beat you yep and those are not always those are oftentimes different things so it's yeah yeah it's just i love that episode because he felt the same way about horace grant he felt the same way i remember when lebron went down to miami i remember jordan saying like i didn't want to join the other guys i wanted to beat them um Mm. and um there's something there to go back to what we talked about before about the test of wills and the beauty of that, like BJ Armstrong tells that story with a smile and so does Jordan (laughs) because BJ rose to Jordan's level, even for a moment. Yeah. You can't tell me that somewhere in Michael Jordan's heart, he doesn't believe that he's responsible for BJ playing that good that night. Starting with that season, I felt Michael Jordan never played basketball anymore. He just figured out how to win the game. He knew how to steer momentum. He knew how to get guys going. So he was just playing a different game than the rest of us. He let us play, but he was there to win the game. And he knew that. And he once he figured that out, you couldn't beat him. The next story ends up being about LeBradford Smith, who I'd <laughs> never heard of before this. But it's a, TJ, you're going to love this story. <laughs> this kid comes into the league. They have a game with the Bulls. Bulls, Michael Jordan doesn't play very well. Smith goes off. And apparently, after the game, says, nice game, Mike. And Michael Jordan takes that as the hugest indignation. Like, this is the slight, and I am going to get as many points as he had the full game. I'm going to get that amount in the first half. And so one of the commentators says he took such umbrage that he torched and humiliated this kid in front of 20,000 people. Now, fast forward 20 years later, an interviewer asked him about that night when um, when Bradford Smith said, nice game, Mike. And Jordan says 
you know what? I made that up. <laughs> <laughs> it never happened. Oh, goodness. So good. What is it about this person's personality of needing motivation of slights that are, you know, real or imagined to get you up? Well, I think this is part of where the the justice issue comes in. Like, he needs a dragon to fight. He needs something Mm. to battle against. It's not that he wants to win. It's (laughs) that he wants to beat the other guy. Mm -hmm. But if there isn't somebody to beat, he has to invent somebody to beat. (laughs) So like he creates this this and and this is this is part of the heart of competition, um, like like you have to this is where zero sum game thinking comes in. You have to have someone that loses in order for you to win, and maybe this is this is a, a healthier way for some eights to go about expressing their competitive side, because if they can embrace the idea of manufacturing someone to beat or something to to rail against some type of dragon to slay then they don't have to treat others as the enemy mm-hmm. like now he can go out and just be the best that he can be because he is is like slaying this this dragon in his own way Sean, I got a question for you on this. It seems like threes will lie to themselves about how great they are mm-hmm. uh, or spin things. Eights on this front are lying to themselves about how much the other person has done them wrong. Right. See that my, old, my oldest is an eight, and the amount of energy manufactured sometimes about the thinking has gone off the rails in terms of a story that's been woven into what we've done as parents to them. We're fantastic parents. That's not, that's, that's not, that's not always believed by my teenager. Yeah. <laughs> and it comes out of that space of making up stories about how badly this person has done them. Do you have right. thoughts on the difference there between threes and eights? Yeah, um, so that eight anger, right? So I've, I've wondered about this. So the eights that I know in my experience are very tender, to their inner circle and their family. And Michael Jordan appears t- to be a really good dad, very tender toward his own children. Um, and I wonder sometimes if they have so much of that outward dragon slaying, as TJ calls it, which I love that image, that mm-hmm. like it's got to go somewhere because I'm not taking it home. Right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to do this to my kids because that's, that's my safe, vulnerable, open place. Mm-hmm. And so if there's not a great injustice to rail against, I need, I need to create one for self-protection and for the protection mm-hmm. of the people I love most. And like, oh, man, he was thinking it. I mean, how many Enneagram, how many eights are saying to themselves, well, they were thinking that anyway. They didn't say it, but they were thinking mm-hmm. it anyway. Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. So it's like, yeah, it's kind of manufactured. So where a three, the first... The first deceit a three makes is to themselves. Like we lie to ourselves first. And so maybe the, the first battle, the, the first place of anger for eights is externalized like someone else, someone else did something. That's why I feel this way. And so until I vanquish that thing or that person, I will carry around this feeling and I don't want to, it'll be in my body and I don't want to take it home. I think it's self-protective more than anything. I like that. 
those those I those images of him being angry at somebody and then taking out his vengeance on them is all over this documentary. Like, so again, I should have been clued into how <laughs> anger works in this this person. Make hash marks every time he says somebody did blank and I took it personally. Yes, right, mm. right. It's yeah. like over and over again. I took everywhere. It. So I I tweeted, you know. I tweeted, like, I ordered my eggs over easy, and the waitress brought them to the, me over medium. <laughs> so I, I dropped 66 points on her son in the local park. I took it personally. <laughs> <laughs> like, that, that's Michael Jordan energy. Like, man, you, like, dude, like, you, you seem to take a lot personally. <laughs> he comes back from baseball. He had shifted in baseball to wearing the number 45, and he decides to keep that as a basketball player. And I, I took this as part of his grieving, that for now, I'm not wearing 23 because that was the number I shared when my dad was with me. Mm-hmm. And now it's 45. But he gets into the playoffs and gets they've risen high. They're playing the Magic. The Magic are going to go on to win that year, I believe. They didn't and win the championship. They lost to the Rockets in the finals. Boom. <laughs> One of the Magic players says 45 isn't 23. Mm-hmm. The slight that was needed for Jordan in the next game, Clark Kent comes out of the phone booth and pulls back the blue blazer, and the 23 is dead center in the middle of his chest, and he goes off that night. Mm-hmm. And Horace Grant, who is a former teammate who's watching and heard this and knows how Jordan thinks, is just... Beside himself, like that was that that was the wrong thing to say. Yeah. So, <laughs> so Nick Nick Anderson for the Orlando Magic after that fr- after that game says, "Well, um, forty five ain't twenty three. And so <laughs> Michael comes out the next night and torches them. People forget though, the Bulls lost that series. The Magic won yes. that series. Right. And because Nick Anderson had stolen the ball from Michael late in that game that they lost the last forty five game. And then takes it the other way. They score. That's the end of the game. End of the, se- the series ends. The Magic players lift up Horace Grant. This is Shaq. This is Penny Hardaway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lift him up and carry Horace Grant off. And that's when Horace, who had played two seasons before, won the championship with the Bulls, said, like, that we should have never done that. Like, that was just. But they, <laughs> but they had lost the series. And he, knew, and he knew Jordan. And so Jordan goes in the next day after the playoffs are over and starts working for the next season. If you're interested in that game, you should watch the 30 for 30 called This Magic Moment about the Orlando Magic. It is fabulous. I have not watched that one yet. I've seen it. I've seen the pop up. That's good. Is it because is that where it ends? Is with that moment? No, it ends with Shaq leaving to go to the Lakers. And um, Shaq says if they win that first, like that he thinks he probably never goes to the Lakers if they win in in Orlando, but it's just about the Orlando magic series. I mean, the sure. Orlando magic team, the franchise and going to those two, going to the finals that one year. Uh, but they go into even more detail about Jordan's reaction to yeah. Horace Grant being carried off. Because that becomes, that becomes again, one of those slights that is real where mm. it's like, this is going to motivate me. And what they win 69 the next year. And then 72 the year mm-hmm. after that. And it's all him motivated by that moment. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> um best nine moment of the of the documentary comes next with Steve Kerr. Steve Kerr is another bull. 
uh, and this is how they end the this uh, the the eighth episode is Phil Jackson's trying to c- create competition. He begins apparently calling Ticky Tack fouls, and <laughs> Michael Jordan decides to just full on crush Kerr and says, that's a fucking foul. And Kerr says this, he says, I have a lot of patience as a human being, but um, I tend to snap at some point because I'm extremely competitive too. Just not really good enough to back it up usually, but I'm going, I'm going, I'm going to, I'm going to fight. And so he drills Jordan in the chest with a punch and Jordan, who's like a foot taller than him and has 50 yeah. more pounds on him, punches him right in the eye. Uh-huh. <laughs> and Jackson the, throws him out of the, the practice to the, into the showers. And he says, I'm feeling this small. I just picked a fight with the smallest guy on the team. <laughs> and Kerr says something interesting afterwards. I want your response on this. We talked it out and... It was probably, in a weird way, uh, best, the best thing that I ever did was stand up for myself with him uh, because he tested everybody he played with, and I stood up to him. And I was certain you would resonate with that. So what, what do you see there? Well, I think it's hilarious that, like, like, the smallest player on the team, this tiny little white guy who, like, like this is literally the first time I've ever heard his name. <laughs> like this is the first time you've heard the name Steve Kerr. Yeah. Oh yeah. I I don't I don't follow basketball. So <laughs> like, why on earth would he come at Michael Jordan? Like, don't know. That was that was a terrible idea. And the only place that could have come from was like the extreme reaction of anger bursting out of him at an inappropriate time. <laughs> Okay, so you probably need to know that one, Steve Kerr is the only player in NBA history to win four championships in a row. He won three with the Bulls, and the next season he won with the San Antonio Spurs. He's won two as a coach, so he's already at six rings. He's the coach of the Golden State Warriors. But, oh yeah, his father um, was the president of a university, I think, and was killed in Beirut. And it's kind of one of these people who seems unassuming, but underneath all of the patience and and I would say grace, because um, he does have a deep well within him, is mm-hmm. one of those guys who's just uh, made out of shards of glass and steel. Like sure. he's the yeah. he's the kind of guy who, yeah, exactly what you said. Like after like he it is patience, not weakness. Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. he'll he'll wait. He'll wait, he'll wait, he'll wait, and then get pushed a little bit too far, and then he comes out swinging. <laughs> yeah, that makes total sense to me. And, and like, like, I love that he, he specifically says, like, I know how much patience I have, and I also know that at some point my patience runs out, and if I don't get away before, like, I know where that line is, and if I don't get away before that line is crossed, I'm going to do something real stupid possibly punch Michael Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> so this was a real interesting thing about these two men. Both of their fathers were murdered. Yeah. And Steve Kerr is the only one that talks about this. Clearly, you said this. Michael Jordan owns the company 
and doesn't go down this this road. But Kerr wants to say, you know, Michael lived a different life than the rest of us um, out of necessity. He couldn't live that normal life. It's very difficult to reach him emotionally. And that's when the interviewer says, hey, did you ever talk about the murder of your father? And Kerr says, no, we never we never spoke about it. I found that so interesting. And well, it comes out of their types. But go ahead. Yeah, Kerr, Kerr would not have imposed that mm-hmm. on yep. Michael Jordan. Absolutely not ever. If Jordan had brought it up to Kerr, they would have had the most meaningful, impactful conversation of their entire lives. Wow. Mm. Because what? they would have shared that moment together. And I bet that nobody else could have resonated with Michael Jordan the way that Steve Kerr could have. But Kerr absolutely would not ever put that on to Michael Jordan. Wow. Because they weren't close. Yeah. There's a lesson. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and it made me think, it's particularly that moment, you see all of these like cheesy, like we were on a TV show for seven years together and 10 years from later we all do a reunion and we're all sitting in director's chairs together. And I, I just wonder the directorial or producers, why not put those guys all in the same room again to mm. tell this story? Because they're uh, not friends. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 I thought that was just amazing. Mm-hmm. It's not like they couldn't afford the plane tickets, right? Right. <laughs> right. It's because eights aren't leaders to be friends. Yeah. Hmm. What's interesting on exactly this front is the next story in the documentary is about Gus, the security guy who gets cancer. And Michael Jordan's a great guy because he goes out, wins it for Gus and gives him the game ball. I do have relationships, but it's over here and it's with a small set of people, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And you've never, heard, you've never heard of any of these people until this documentary, really, unless you were in that circle. And so the eights in my life are very careful about who is in their circle. But when you are when you're in need, they are all the way to the wall for you. Yep. Right. Yep. Mm. If you're in, you are in. Right. Yeah. And and there's almost no way to get out once you're in. Right. But right. but when you're out, you are out. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, Forever. <laughs> yeah. So I, I didn't find that surprising at all, especially someone of the generation of his father. Mm-hmm. That, and a father figure to him. What I would love to know about Michael Jordan is why it it appears that you so desperately need a father figure. Mm. And and I don't know the answer to that question, but it's it's writ large on his life. Like he doesn't know what to do. Same thing happened with Tiger Woods, right? When did Tiger start to spiral yeah. um, after mm-hmm. his father died? Michael Mike Tyson. Yeah, like. That time, that time article from like 1998, right? This is like, you know, dad is destiny. For a lot of us, that's really true. Like it is mm. so tied to, I think, especially for aggressive numbers who are trying to prove something, trying to prove something, trying to prove something. Mm. When we stop and say, who are we trying to prove it to? 90% of the time it's dad. Mm. And when that goes away, when dad goes away, we just don't know what to, don't know what to do with ourselves. Um, the Mike Tyson Tiger Woods image, I think, is 
Like those are dudes who, if anyone, can, you can say anybody is at that same level as Michael Jordan. It's those two guys, yeah. and both of them lose their father figure at a critical, you know, time, and they both spiral out of control. Um, I think that's that's just a that's that's worth that's worth studying. Mm-hmm. Episode ten. This is the end. They are pushing towards the home stretch. It starts out with. Phil Jackson reminding everybody to remember uh, their breathing, getting centered. Uh, You guys know that you have to support yourselves and your teammates here in this building. It's like sheep to the wolves. This is a pep talk. Mm -hmm. And they're closing in on on the end. Anything you see there? We had typed Jackson as a three. You got any threeness going on there, Sean? You know, I still really want to hold on to Phil as having kind of some big four energy. Yeah. But that sort of, um, especially threes later in life, after they have undoubtedly accomplished some things, become so collaborative and very circle the wagons. Like when they are really secure that they've done the thing. And this is um, well into after winning titles as a player and, Already done, done the three-peat and the repeat going. So he knows that his place is secure. Mm. That sounds very much like what a three would say to a group of people. Mm. You know, kind of we're all in this together. But with all of that aggressive energy, right? Like we're all in this together and we're all that we have. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, at the yeah. same time. Like it's us against the world. And especially like in this place, they're out in Utah. That was a really good jazz team, if I remember. Yeah, so I see a lot of that in even myself when I talk to our staff. And like almost always, it's this, hey, we're in this together. Like, this is us. Like, And so that really resonated with me. And, you know, it's sort of boilerplate coach speak. But his having play, what we talked about before, having players read books, um, go through breathing and stretching exercises. Like, it's all... um, it's all toward this end of building, accomplishing something together. So I get, I get that really on a kind of emotional level. Like, yeah, that's, that's even what I want out of a leader. Mm. There's something about what the game between your ears side of sports that I find really fascinating. I love listening to sports psychologists mm-hmm. who that feels like it's that field is blown up in a, a lot more in recent years that it's not just about how fast this person can run. It's, how their mind processes all the things. And if you have a coach who's just deeply into that, elevating that, especially when everybody in the state of Utah is against you when you right. get off the plane. Right. And you don't, uh, it wasn't covered in the, it wasn't covered in the documentary, but if people go back or remember like Dennis Rodman said a lot of negative things about Utah, you know, and oh. like he had, you know, they covered this one excursion that he had to Vegas at this one particular time. But when he was in Utah, he did that multiple times where he would just like, Hey, I'm in Utah. I'm going to shoot over to Vegas for a night or like right after the game and kind of party and come back. And so there was true animosity between some of the Utah fans and the, that bulls team. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about like three goes to six in secure situations and like in, in healthy ways, they start to use that, that energy to work towards the success of the group. And so then in, 
in maturity, like as, as a three sort of grows up and begins to become a more whole human being, um, you would start to see that be a more commonplace reaction. So I see that like, like sort of integrating the success of the group as, as a goal more often like that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And even thinking about like his, his sort of like the, the stuff that sort of leans towards a little bit more for thinking like a, there is that four wing, but also like it's entirely possible that, that he saw this as the road to success. Mm. You know, like, like this is the thing that we're going to do to be successful and we're going to do it hard, you know? Mm. And if that's had that, if that is what he saw as like, this is the path then he would, do it to death as a yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. He says, uh, knowing that this is the last dance and trying to muster up the energy to finish this off. We were mentally, physically exhausted, but we didn't lose focus of what we were trying to achieve. The whole beginning is about they're unifying, they're breathing together, they're supporting each other. And then Dennis Rodman goes and joins the World Wrestling Entertainment. Uh, <laughs> I'm screwing that up. What is it? Yeah, yeah. WWF uh, he, at he, the time. He, he, he joins the <laughs> WWE event, you know, yeah. like you do right before uh, game three. Yeah. You know, going to go party with uh, Mr. Hogan. And here's like the, the, the incredible inside story of the inside story. So he comes oh. back. He, he does that. You know, before earlier, they tell that story when he goes to he goes to Vegas and he kind of gets he gets permission from both Jordan and from Phil, but not this time. Like he just hops over to Vegas to go do this thing. (laughs) And so they fine him twenty thousand dollars, which would be significant for me. But like the WWE, which is the the WWF at the time, paid him for that appearance two hundred fifty thousand (laughs) dollars for for that. So it was totally worth it. Oh yeah. yeah, like like you'd be a fool to not do that every time. Right. So like you could fold that into the uh, Rodman likes to party narrative, but you also remember about Dennis Rodman from other um, other documentaries about him. Like he was broke for most of the time. Like he um, by that point in his career, he had made some money and gone broke, and had a mm. financial advisor who put him on a budget. Um, <laughs> And like he was trying to make money. That's why he wrote all the books and you're showing up at a book signing wearing a wedding dress and all of the other sorts of things. Like, <laughs> like it's not so like, that's why he's one of those people that for me, like when we talked about him is a little bit harder to um, kind of see where his motivations are mm-hmm. because he does have some motivation, some bottom line of like just needing to pay the bills. Right. And so even when he's long out of his prime in basketball, he's playing in these like offshoot low budget leagues because he can't, he doesn't know what else to do with himself. Plus um, it's still generating income. Right. That he comes back and I wanted your, your thoughts on this quote, because it's, it's a perfect illustration of the relationship that Rodman has with Jackson. He, he just said about that episode. I I just think that Phil realized that I need to always do me. Let's go do what I do. There is a self-centeredness there. There is also a, I have somebody in my corner, even when my, I'm at my unhealthiest, I think. I, I think there's a great, like, like exploring the idea of Rodman as a four. Like there's a great sort of acceptance that 
that someone is letting me be exactly who I want to be. Like it's, it's not about control in that moment. It's about expression. And, and if he had any respect for Phil Jackson at all, like it was in that it was in the fact that this guy would let him express himself exactly how he wanted to. That probably would have built a, a, a lifetime amount of respect between those two men. Mm. You got that, Sasha? Well, I, I do see a lot of four energy, and I always want to be careful with this because, you know, I think I said this maybe in an earlier episode, fours with three wings at the, in the workplace look almost exactly like a three, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, depending on what that, that workplace is. And so what, I, what you get with Rodman, I think, it is exactly what TJ says, is that there is this great love for Phil that Phil lets him express himself like within certain bounds because he needs those boundaries mm-hmm. and that in it allowing by Phil allowing Dennis to do what he does, that is, that is tantamount to Phil just dropping a thousand. I love you's on yep. top of him yep. and being able to, to get out whatever he feels like he get, gets to get out, but he's the only one that gets to be treated that way. Right. So, Which also reinforces it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like he's the only one on the team that's treated that way. Um, Michael wouldn't act that way. Scotty wouldn't act that way. But here's Dennis, uh, and he he can accept his role because he thought and think of other things that he says in the documentary just point to that four energy. Like he said, I, I knew I was going to be Scotty. I knew I wasn't going to be. It was Michael's team. But like I could rebound. And so for his whole career, even before then, he was focusing on study. Who studies rebounding? Mm-hmm. And there's this piece when he talks about all of his opponents knowing how their ball spun. So when they shot from certain places on the floor, he could anticipate where the yeah. rebound was going to be. Mm-hmm. Just what and like he says, like the, he will say to the state, that's what made me special. He doesn't say that's mm. what made me good. Yeah. Yeah. He says that's what made me special. Yep. And that's that perks up my ears. They go on to Chicago for game five. Uh, Chicago is up three to one. They're going to win the championship at home and they lose game five. And then they got to travel back to Utah and it's game six. The thing about game sixes is if you lose game six, you have to go to this all or nothing it's the last game of the season, mm-hmm. game seven, in, in hostile territory. So game six ends up being huge. You want to set this up, Sean, in, in terms of that game six? So it's game six. Jordan never went to a game seven. I think that was a personal point of pride for him. Uh, so he could always say that they were never even close. Like the, he only lost, ever lost two games. And um, in Utah, that was a fabulous Utah Jazz team. Pippen's back sees is up, and he virtually can't play. And they decide, well, we can at least use him as a decoy, right? And um, this is, you know, you get that Jordan eye roll. And he talks about the game. Like, Jordan rolls his eyes so often in this documentary, <laughs> talking about other people's, like, and then, then he'll say something like, hey, you know what? I'm not going to say he didn't have a migraine. You know, well, that's the day that Scotty's back, you know, just cramped up. And you get this, you get this sense watching him that's like, Oh, this is a bunch of crap. This, you know, like the pressure got to him. It didn't get to me. Like, and so he had mm-hmm. some physical response. 
which would not be out of character for certain types, right? There's, on that front, this is paired, is it not, with the flu game or the pizza gate at this point. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was strong enough to endure even being poisoned, poisoned. by fans, but... I, I was the one who right. maybe was carrying these other guys, or at least I'm I'm still the alpha dog when it comes to endurance. Yeah, I think he I think Jordan wants the world to know that he was purely unstoppable mm. Mm. and invulnerable. Right. So even because since the last dance ended, I, I've gone back and watched portions of his Hall of Fame acceptance speech, which is the one of the least graceless speeches you'll ever hear in your life. <laughs> and it's a lot of the same airing of grievances, like uh, even yeah. about like the, the general manager and he's talking about organizations winning games and Jordan says in his Hall of Fame acceptance speech, well, I didn't see an organization playing with the flu. You know, like it's just like that no, I'm not vulnerable at all. I can overcome everything, even the weaknesses of my own teammates. A fixation for eights of, I mean, it's it's getting stuck in vengeance mindset, yeah? This is the person that did me wrong, and I have to be constantly, I, I, I find myself mentally aware of those who have harmed me, and that becomes my meditation. Right, right. That comes out there, yeah? Yeah, and it, I mean, 20-something years later, he's still mad at the same people over the same things. 20-something years later. Right? Yeah. Which is, to me, a horrible, horrible way to live. And, like, yeah. people he does not have relationship with. Right. Some who are dead. Right. Right. <laughs> you know. So all of that comes, all of those personalities, I think, are on display in that game six. Yeah, talk about that. So, because, you know, Pippin, like, like he's, he's in a lot of pain, but, like, he's, he's out there taking one for the team. Like, he didn't think that he was going to, like... I don't know if that's his way of of withdrawing from really tense situations. Mm. But it seems like a couple of times at really critical points, there's a physical reason for him to not be present or like not be fully present. Yep. Um, and how um, how somatic that is, I don't know. I have recently heard a great interview with talking about the, the somatic effects in terms of um, expression of your of your typology, right? And like for all of us, we're doing something physically that is connected to our core personality type. So I just think it's really fascinating. I don't know a whole enough about that to speak intelligently about it, but I just found it fascinating. And I, I think an argument could be made that that's what's happening. And um, you're here at the doorstep of the, re, the repeat of the three-peat. And that's when Scotty has a problem. Yeah. The I was I was curious for your guys' thoughts on this. It seems like the documentary as a whole is about mm -hmm. Jordan playing without Pippin. The documentary ends in essence with Jordan playing without Pippin. He's had like that that team actually ended up having some experience of what does it look like when Pippin goes down, mm -hmm. which here in crunch time seemed to me quite valuable for them. Um, and Costas uh, says this about the end of this game, which obviously it's a back and forth. Costas says, Michael Jordan at this advanced stage of his career has to carry the team. He has to play extra minutes in a grueling series. And that last sequence in the final half minute plus is one of the greatest sequences you'll ever see in any sport. What do you think about the end of this game? 
it was a great end. I, I loved it at the moment when I, I remember it happening. Um, I want to say he pushed off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to say Jordan pushed off. But it, You're it, not going to go a, with Costa saying it's the wait, waiter just saying, here's your table, sir? Yeah, well, let me, I'll say this. Um, that's a regular season foul. That's it's not a, a <laughs> that's not a game six foul. Like I, mm. um, a, a ref would have to be really bold to blow a whistle on that in a game six of the finals. Like that's, it was, it was gentle, but it was there. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a great end and it would have been great if that were the last bit of his story of Jordan's story in basketball, like hitting that game winner, the steal yeah. before, um, Especially when I think is that the year that Carl Malone was M- was MVP of the league. Yep. So it is that ending's out of a movie, right? Except in the yep. movie, it would have been Game Seven. That's the right, only difference. Yeah. Um, but the he's right about that. Um, just dead on. One of the best things you'll ever see. And because it's interesting, because it's Jordan, I don't think it gets played back as one of the incredible moments in ba- in sports history because by that point we had come to expect so many incredible moments Mm. from him Mm -hmm. it's not incredible it's just jordan right (laughs) sure yeah so they obviously win and then a large section of this episode 10 is jordan saying we deserved to go for number seven Mm -hmm. and he actually wants to go out not as a winner he wants to push the limits and when he gets dethroned, then he would step aside, as opposed to what seemed to me an actually, you know, a stronger image that you are going out on top of the world with a three-peat. It's, uh, there's only a few athletes who have done this. Right. Two of them being Bronco quarterbacks, of course. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about that in terms of his eightness of wanting to go until he's unseated, as opposed to going out on top? Right, so you've got that. I mean, eights truly respect people who stand up to them. Mm. And the way you earn their respect is that you say this far and no further, yeah. right? And you, you, have to, you have to beat them to silence them. And I think Michael Jordan feels like he was never beaten. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think he would have less trouble. I think I think he'd carry less vengeance mm. it right now if he had ever been beaten with that team while they were on the top. <laughs> like those Wizards teams that he went to, yeah. there was never really an expectation that they were going to do anything. I just felt like yeah. it's almost like he just had some more basketball in him to get out. But he doesn't respect, I mean, he respects other players, but he feels like the one of the reasons that he is at the top of the hill is that no one beat him, right? Yeah. And so... Um, that sort of testing your power that eights do mm-hmm. that most of the time is pretty innocuous and they all know it is. And we all know it is if we're around eights enough. And you're just like that thing that you're going off about isn't a big enough deal to me to have. But like when you come head to head, like you do in sports. Yeah. He's going to feel that. Plus there's just an ethos of sports, especially basketball. Like if you grow up in a neighborhood where kids play basketball a lot, mm. like you get to hold the court. Until somebody beats you. Yeah. And that is the spirit of the game. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So there's almost like, and we talked about this before, his love and appreciation for tradition and what came before. And he feels like, hey, we did that with the Pistons. They were on the top of the hill and then we came up and, and we beat them. Yeah. Like you, you, you earn every step 
And I think he would have had an incredible amount of respect for any team when they were at the height of their power, not him coming back from playing baseball, and when they were at the height of their power winning championships for somebody to come along and knock them off, I think he would have probably been the first guy to say, this is yours, you earned it. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. He, ne- he never got the chance to. I think he, he bristles at the chance, not just of not being able to defend his championship, but the opportunity to hand it over, you know, to another saying of my father's, I shared one with you earlier, is like, you know, to, to be the man, you got to beat the man. Mm-hmm. And he feels like no one ever came and beat the man. Mm-hmm. There is one final image of strength that they insert, and it's about the growth of the NBA. I don't know if what the if you were to compare it with the NFL, um, with Major League Baseball, during the same period of time, I'd be curious what the growth stats are. But S- David Stern says... In 92, the NBA was in 80 countries, and now... The NBA is in 215 countries. Anyone who understands that phenomenon of that historical arc will understand that Michael Jordan and his era played an incredibly important part in it. He advanced us tremendously. It's like he is not only seeing basketball promoted all over the world, he is literally responsible for billions and billions and billions of dollars of wealth being generated in our country and around the world. Um, and that image of, I, I saw that as just another image of strength there. Right. But you guys have thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, like basketball thoughts. I mean, like I'm old enough to remember when the NBA finals were shown on tape delay. Mm. Is it really? Yeah. So when I was in second, third grade, like if you, yeah. were, if you were in second, third grade, you never saw the finals because they were on super late at night on tape delay. It was a, it was a niche sport. Um, yeah. Bef- and... So you get Magic and Larry come in and they take it to one level and, and kind of get it in the prime time for yeah. a couple of months a year. And by the time Jordan gets there, uh, the thing just explodes. And the NBA had this very, I don't, there were a lot of, a lot of aggressive energy <laughs> running the NBA yeah. at that time um, because they just started a marketing machine and they decided let's not market teams, let's market players. And that's Magic and Larry, and then Jordan. That's why, and you see those bad boys, uh, Detroit Piston documentaries, and you still talk about them today. Like, I mean, they would say that the league hated them. They were pissing in everybody's pool because Mm -hmm. they weren't attractive. They were from this really blue collar city. They played this bruising brand of basketball. And the NBA at the time wanted something that was slick and fun and fast and attractive, and they weren't it. So, yeah. so that's the time where, when Jordan comes in and you just get, he is so, because of the big shot he hit at North Carolina, like he is so charismatic following in the footsteps of Magic Johnson, who was also very charismatic, that it just, it, it was the perfect storm, perfect marketing storm, and they leveraged it to the hilt and Nike was new and they had, they were invested in, in building up Michael Jordan. So a lot of people were, and the, t- the league tanked, right? When he, it didn't tank, but revenues were down. Viewership were down those two years that he didn't play those 18 months and they needed him back. And, but by the time he left, there was Penny and Shaq and Kobe mm-hmm. 
and Tim Duncan and some future faces to move the for the the sport forward. So yeah, David Stern's exactly right. They needed him and they had a mutually useful relationship. <laughs> which is which is very aggressive number too, right? Like yeah. we're all working on something and uh, we're gonna do it and we will we will feel about it later. How we use each other we will consider later. Feels like that's maybe that's just the '80s and '90s. The, the Mike Tyson and uh, Tiger Woods come to mind again on that. Tyson goes to prison, and there's kind of this lull. Tiger Woods drops off, and there's this lull for these huge sports mm-hmm. that have been built up around them. I can't think of any other uh, examples other than those three men. That but it feels like, I mean, even right now, like Mike Tyson is trying to make a comeback in. I follow boxing on Twitter and this is the big story. Like there's, mm-hmm. there are four great heavyweights right now who should be preparing for some sort of, you know, bracket to somebody being named the best, but it's Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson is 53 and coming back yeah. and everybody's like, man, I saw Mike hit a punching bag the other day. It was impressive. But doesn't all that say something really interesting about human personality? Like we yeah, will, we, we consume brands, but we connect with people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it's that connection with people that make things interesting. Like no one really cared about the Klitschko's when they were, you know, mm-hmm. at the top of the boxing world. Um, mm-hmm. And if you don't have the kind of personality, I think this year, like a tennis player will be the highest paid athlete in the, in the world. It's not the sport. Like we connect, humans connect with, with stories and people. Yeah. And that's what Watch sports, the Olympics. That's, right. No, the Olympics is a great example because it's sports that people hardly, I mean, like hardly know anything about. Yeah. Um, the, the, they're having to explain the rules. And what does NBC <laughs> do? They spend most yeah. of their time not covering the sport, but telling you <laughs> stories. Mm-hmm. That's exactly um, yep. Well, I, I think so great about the Enneagram is it reveals to you the places where you most want to and need to be loved. But I think it also reveals that like your fundamental function in life, the what you want to do at your core is to love. Like we love mm. to love things mm. to the point that we love things that aren't really worth saying that we love. Like, man, I love the eggs that my wife made for breakfast. Like there is a part of us that just wants to love things. And when those when when those things are people like we we want to go to there with people most of us who are relatively healthy and it's when we are wounded what um christopher hewards calls our uh, kid life crisis right um like when we're wounded that's when we start to draw back from loving because the the wound is so profound and that's when we take on personality and what we're trying to get back to isn't just being loved but to a place where we feel secure loving That's a great place to to wrap up. You got a, you got a final word, TJ, on this? I got nothing to add to that. That was beautiful. Hey, it would mean the world to us if you would pause, take two seconds, and write us a brief review or give us some stars. You can always find us on Instagram at Around the Circle Podcast. But the best thing that you can do is share this episode with somebody that you love. You CJ Wilson? It's been a blast. He's Sean Palmer. They're both officially awesome. It was great to be with you guys. I'm Jeff Cook. It was such a good time, and who you aren't isn't interesting. Be who you are, and you'll set the world on fire.